welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So today we are in week six of our Words from the Cross series. There are seven weeks in this series. We have one more week next week, right before Easter, as we build up then to the resurrection uh, that Sunday. But today we are in the sixth week. It's crazy to think that we've been in this series already for six weeks and that we've walked through a lot of the different things Jesus said from the cross. And and, and, and it's been, for me, eye-opening in a lot of ways. It's also been very uh, interesting in the study aspect of it. I've enjoyed studying through this series. I think as much as I've enjoyed any series I've ever taught, we've ever walk through. This has been a blast for me. I've just thoroughly enjoyed uh, what I've gained from it myself. Hopefully that has translated to you guys as well. And that I'm not just some like babbling brook up here that you're going, okay, at, at some point you should be done and just move on. Right. But, but I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. So hopefully you have as well. Last week we talked about how Jesus said, I thirst. And we, and we, we discussed how it reveals his humanity to us. It reveals his humanity, that there's that, that ability for Jesus not only to sympathize, but to empathize with us in our hurts and in our, in our, our weakest moments and our moments of vulnerability where Jesus finally says, okay, physically, I have had enough. I thirst, right? And we, we discussed that and we said, you know, there are those moments that, that we have had enough and Jesus then gives us permission to say, I thirst, I thirst, how many of you are thankful that, that he understands our needs, right? That, that he can relate to us on a human level, that he can connect to us on a human level. So we're going to keep moving through this uh, today as we continue to work through this series, Words from the Cross. How many of you just love finishing something, just completing something, having something and accomplishing something, right? I thoroughly enjoy when I get to just mark things off the to-do list. I use an app on my phone uh, and I just, it's a to-do list and, I, and it's connected to everything. So like if I check it off on one thing, boom, it's checked off on every other thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's like I just checked off three things, but it's really just one, but it's just on every platform, right? So I just love having this thing with me so that I can check things off. I'll type things out in the morning. I'll have my whole to-do list written out and all the things that I need to get done. And I love just going through it and knocking things off or going, okay, that can go to tomorrow because I don't have time for that, whatever, you know, but just saying with it and going, okay, these things are getting done. It feels so good. I remember growing up in Saxe, Texas. That's right. The booming metropolis of Saxe, Texas. I remember growing up there, we had four acres that we lived on and now we leased another 85 around us that my dad would just bail the hay just because he wanted to have the space, right? And so we would do that, but, but I had to take care of on a pretty regular basis, four acres uh, on Saturday mornings. As a high school kid, there's nothing you want to do more than to wake up early on a Saturday and mow the yard, right? That is just what you dream about. You go, man, I can't wait to sit on a lawnmower for four hours tomorrow. This is going to be so good. So I'd get up early on Saturday mornings and I would start down at the bottom of the land and I would start mowing and I would mow my way all the way up until I mowed all four acres. And then I had to get out the weed eater and I had to go around all the trees and we had the trees and I had to go around the driveway and edge around the whole driveway. And then around, we had a pool and I had to go around the pool and all that stuff, clean all that up. Edging and weed eating took me longer at that house and it takes me to do my entire yard and finish and put everything away at my house now. And I'm going, I don't think I ever want four acres at this point in my life. I think I'm content with my third of an acre. It's so good. And so I, I would go and I would start. And, and then after it was all done, I then had to get out the, the blower and I had to clean it all off because it had to look phenomenal. My dad loved the day that I was old enough to take on the entire responsibility, right? Because for him, it was like, 
oh, I've got other things I can be doing, which he would always find something to do. He would either get out on the tractor or he would cut hedges or things of that nature. But it would take me about six hours every Saturday morning. Six hours. And like I said, when you're in high school, you go, I don't have six hours. I need to sleep, right? Like that's really kind of the mentality and the mindset. Uh, no offense, high schoolers, but I've, I've been one. I know what it's like. It's so, you know, I would take forever to get this all done, but I know that at the end of the day, I would stop and I would look back and it would be done and everything would look so nice. And you go, that feels good. Look what I accomplished. And, and I found myself over time taking more and more and more pride in the work that I was doing, going, okay, when I edge this, it's going to be to perfection. This is going to be absolutely perfect around this. We had the largest circular drive I think I've ever seen in a normal house, right? Like it wasn't like, there's mansions, right? Have these huge, whatever. But in like the largest circle drive for a normal house, and it would take forever just to edge that whole thing. And you go, 45 minutes later, right? I'm done edging. But six hours start to finish, and I would look back at the end of the day, and it would just be done, and it would be completed, and it would be finished. And I would go, man, this looks so good. I'm so pumped after about what I just did. And then I was free. I was like, ha, I'm free for the rest of the day, right? You know, that kind of thing. And, and so I'd usually jump in the pool and then go take a nap or something. I don't even know. Like, it was just like I had freedom in that moment, but I was done. I was finished. This week, as we continue to look at the words of Jesus, we're, we're going to be in, in John chapter 19 yet again in verse 30. And it says this in verse 30. It says, when he had received the drink, because remember last week he said, I thirst, and he was given the drink. Jesus said... It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And you're probably thinking, how is this not the last week? There is another statement that is made after this that we'll discuss next week, in case you're wondering. So before we fully dive into uh, what all of this means and and, and the theological implications and whatnot, we we need to look at the word and understand the word for finished. And it is the Greek word teleo, which means to bring to a successful finish to complete, to accomplish. Not just to be done. How many of you have ever said, I'm done? As in, I'm fed up. I've had enough. I don't want any more of this. I'm done. Me too. Me too. So in our last house where we just moved from, we had an acre of land, which has also helped to further instill in me the fact that I don't want a lot of land, right? Because that was a beating in and of itself. And I just go, man, I have small children. There's soccer and just don't have the time. But I decided that I was going to take on the task of putting up my own fence around our yard. And it was a rather large yard. And so luckily I was in a position where both of my neighbors had already put up fences on either side of me. So I just had to do the front and the back. And it was still just under 300 linear feet of of fencing that had to go up. Like I said, it was a very, very large yard. And so I went and I bought all of the the, the four by four posts that I needed, right? And and I bought like 34 of them or whatever it was that I needed to have this this fence go up. And my neighbor had like an auger, so I was digging out the holes of this thing. And, you know, you feel like a real man using power tools. And so I was like, and I'm like shaking uncontrollably. I'm like, I'm doing a good job, right? And it's like, or whatever, you know digging out these holes. And I start up by the house and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this part first and get these posts set, run all my, my, my lines, my string lines, pull everything tight, get it all ready. It's because it's, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do a good job and I'm getting it all set. And I go and I dig my first like six holes and I set those posts and they're right there and they're ready to go. And I've put the concrete in, we're ready. Those are set. And then I go, okay, I just have the other 20 odd posts to go and across the hole back and then the other side and then kicking back over. And I was going, Oh man, 
this is going to be a huge undertaking. So finally, the next day I wake up, I had done those six in that day and I was, because I started late and I get out there and I get out to the backside of the property. Now I'm far away from the house. I'm away from the water hose. I'm trying to figure out how am I going to put, you know, water in the cement? How am I going to make this all work? And so I go and I start digging these holes and I find that where we lived in that particular place, essentially we had about six inches of dirt and then 800 feet of rock. Um, I was, so Midlothian, where we came from, is known as the cement capital of Texas for good reason, because there is nothing but stone under the surface, you know, and you go, oh my word. So I'm sitting there trying to dig through this, and I am like, I'm thinking I'm going to have to buy my neighbor a new auger. This is going to tear it up, and I'm getting through it, and I get about three holes done, and I said, I'm finished. <laughs> I have had enough. I'm not doing this any longer. I'm done. And I thought, I've saved a little money. I'm making a phone call. And I did. I called a guy, and he and his team came and put in my fence. <laughs> and I thought, that was the best decision I have ever made in my entire life. So you see, what we find here with Jesus is he's not just saying, that's it, I'm done. I've had enough of you people. I'm finished. He's not throwing up his hands in disgust. He's not throwing in the towel in, in defeat or, or frustration. No, he's saying the word that he uses means to, to accomplish, to bring to a successful finish. It's a statement that says, I have actually completed this. I have fulfilled this. This has been marked off the to-do list, so to speak. It is completed. He didn't make a phone call and say, uh, could somebody else come and hang on the cross for me? I don't want to do this. No, no, no. No, he successfully completed he finished what he had set out to do. He finished it completely. There's four things that I want to pull from this today as it refers to what he means when he says it is finished. What was Jesus fully stating when he said it is finished? The first thing is this. All prophecy fulfilled. All prophecy fulfilled. From the first to the last from the law of the prophets, every word of scripture was fulfilled in Christ. Every word of scripture was fulfilled through Jesus. There will never be another one who will be capable to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 5, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He said, I didn't come to just get rid of those. I didn't come to shove those to the side or to be done with or to do away with those. He said, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So while Jesus hangs on the cross and he utters the words, it is finished, it is signifying the end of the completion of fulfilling the word of God, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Remove Jesus from the equation. No Jesus, right? So he's removed from it. And now try to solve the problem of fulfilling all the prophecies in one man, in one person. Uh, you would need a prophet like Moses. You would need a, a champion like Joshua. You would need a priest like Aaron. You would need all of them embodied within the same person. Uh, he has to be both the lamb and the altar in which he's slain on. You, you, there's so many different things that you go, how am I going to find a person to fulfill all that scripture called him to be? It's only Jesus. That's why he said it is finished. He had accomplished what nobody else could do. 
So there's a stat that they've said one, in, one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in one <laughs> quadrillion. It's just a small percentage. You got, a, you got a slight chance, right? There's a chance that you could fulfill that one in one quadrillion, you know. But there's a person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one in 10 to the 157th power. Just in case you're wondering, that's, that's a larger number than quadrillion. So uh, I know it's not written out for you fully. So we just didn't have enough room on the screen to make it legible, so we left it at that. But for somebody to fulfill over 300 prophecies is Jesus. It's Jesus. That's the probabilities. You're seeing the probabilities of, of what's taking place here. It, you, know, you go, okay, one person fulfilling eight prophecies, there's a one in one quadrillion chance. Uh, fulfilling 48 prophecies, one in, in 10 to the 157th power chance. And then over 300 prophecies fulfilled in scripture by one person is Jesus alone, Christ alone. And when he speaks those words, he says, it is finished. He's saying, I have accomplished these things. I have done these things. This is a statement of of, of significance. It reveals to, to all people. He's saying, listen, I am in fact fully the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the one who was sent by God to come and be the redemption for the world. I am the one who was sent by God to be the savior of all mankind, to take on sin, to carry it to the cross, to lay down my life. I am the Messiah. I fulfill the word of God. And we could go through prophecy after prophecy, statement after statement of all that, that Jesus did. But I, I could say it this way. No other person has been born of a virgin birth and lived a sinless life. No other person has lived a life worthy of being the atonement for all sin by taking on sin. He who had not known sin, all prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus He even fulfilled prophecies that almost seemed contradictory to each other. The fact of a man being born in Bethlehem, yet being called a Galilean, right? Those things didn't coexist. They were two different regions, different areas. And so the fact that that happened, and then to be somebody who was then called out of Egypt, these things don't line up and add up. All of that only exists in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. This was his final messianic statement. Just like he had done so often, it was veiled to those around him. You see so many times Jesus speaking to his disciples and saying these things and, and, and they're going, what? What are you talking about? What's going on? Jesus is simply, essentially doing the same thing in this moment, just saying, it is finished. All prophecy is fulfilled. The second thing is this, Jewish sacrifice was finished. Jewish sacrifice was finished. From the moment Adam and Eve committed sin, there had to be a sacrifice. In fact, we see in, in Genesis chapter 3 and in, in verse 21 that, that God himself killed animals so that he could cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve, right? In, a, in essence, it was revealing the need for the blood to be shed to cover our shame. So from the moment sin enters the world, there has to be bloodshed for atonement. That is the way God mandated it. That is the way he required it. That is the way he set it up. And so we see that. When they sin, they, they are now aware of their nakedness, right? The Bible says that, that they're hiding, and they said, you know, God said, where are you? As if he didn't know, right? If God ever asks where you are, just know he knows the answer. He's just trying to get you to reveal to yourself what the answer, in fact, is, okay? He's, he's dealing with you, not himself, okay? God knows these things, right? So he says to Adam and Eve, where are you? And they're like, oh, we're hiding because 
we know we're naked now and we don't want you to see us. And God's thinking, I've seen you naked from the moment I created you. Are you kidding me? You know, I, I don't know. That's just, if I'm God, I'm going, hey, Adam, you're dumb, right? I don't know. Like, just, that's kind of, that's why I'm not God, right? There's just so many other reasons. It's just one of many reasons why I'm not God. But, but it, you know, it's that moment of, of, he says, God realizes and knows that there's now been a separation because sin has now entered. And we've talked about this a million times. Sin separates us from God, right? It creates this void, this chasm, and this distance between us. And, and God says, there, is, there has now been sin. There's a separation between you and I. There has to be bloodshed. You need to be covered because now your shame and your guilt is, is being revealed and you are aware of it. And so he says, he kills these animals, gives them these skins and covers them, Right? So you fast forward through that, you look in, into Jewish culture and, and, and the Jewish religion and that idea of, 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 of sacrifice continues to grow and be further implemented by God into the Jewish faith and the Jewish religion. And so you see that moving forward, there are people then that are now ordained to carry out such sacrifices. They become the priests. You have Aaron and you have his sons that, that are now ordained as, as the priests to carry out the sacrifice in the temple. And so the temple becomes the place in which the sacrifice is made for atonement for sin, right? So they would take the perfect lamb or the goat at Passover and they would sacrifice that for the atonement of sin for the people, right? And so there's this process of bloodshed. Now there's this whole part of cleansing and everything that has to take place within the priesthood in the first place to be able to offer the sacrifice and that then if you become unclean, you are unfit to be in the presence of God. There's a whole lot of other stuff wrapped into that that we are not gonna discuss today, but it's, it's good and we'll get there one day, right? Um, or just read it. It's like Leviticus, Exodus, you know, those kind of things. That was out of order biblically, if you're wondering. Yeah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay. So, so we have this whole, whole thing that this process that they have to go through in order to sacrifice. So in order to get to that moment. So there has to be this bloodshed. And we find that, that it says in Leviticus 17, 11, it says this, the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The blood was a requirement for atonement by God, right? God had set it up this way. And so then we fast forward now to the cross. And this is Jesus hanging there in this moment, low on blood. And, and we, there's, there's a lot of medical implications that come to losing oxygen to the brain. And yet, even through that process of losing oxygen to the brain, still very much in his right mind and very much in, in his statement saying, it is finished. My blood has been shed. The atonement has been made for. No longer is there need for sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. I think there's an incredible correlation and significance to the timing in which Jesus was killed. First of all, is that, that Jesus was, was killed around the time of the Passover, right? And we know that because he had the Last Supper with his disciples, and it was like their Passover feast, right? So we know that Jesus is then being sacrificed at the time of Passover. So this is the time in which it was set aside to say, okay, we're going to sacrifice this animal for the atonement of sin. And not only that, so Jesus is then sacrificed. The blood is shed. There is no longer a need. It is finished. There is no longer a need for the sacrificial lamb or the goat to be, to be slain because Jesus had done that. Think about this. This is crazy. Did you know that since 70 AD, the Jews have not had, they have not practiced animal sacrifice? They haven't because it is in Levitical law that they are to do that in the temple. In 70 AD, the Roman Empire destroyed the temple. 
That's within one generation of the death of, of Christ. So follow me here for a minute. I believe and know for a fact that God said, listen, it is no longer necessary for the temple because we no longer have need then for animal sacrifice because the atonement has been paid by Jesus. It is finished. So there's no longer this need for this continual uh, sacrificial lamb being laid on, on the altar. There's no longer this continual need for, for killing and bloodshed over and over. Jesus fully paid the price. It is finished. It is completely accomplished. It is done to a successful finish. There's no coincidence in the timing there's no coincidence in, 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 in how things lined out. It, it was God's providence saying, no, this is finished. This is completed. There's no longer any need for this old process anyway, anymore. We now have Jesus. The final atonement, the full sacrifice has been paid. Isn't it a good feeling when you have a debt that you pay off? I know for Lauren and I, we absolutely love it. When we have some, some bill or a loan or something that we've got, and when we work hard, really hard to pay things off, right? We, we try to get things done as fast as we can because we go, okay, we're going to give a little extra. We're going to pay a little more here and here because once it's done, it's like getting a raise. We go, hey, we just got, we just got a raise. And really, we just paid off a debt, and you know, we didn't get a raise, but it's like, hey, that's done. We paid for that. It's over. And it's like, boom, a bump in our, in our expenses. We go, this is great. We have more money now because that's paid for. We now have complete ownership of that. We're not tied in it. You know, it's this wonderful feeling when everything is paid for. And you go, wow, we don't have any debt. It's paid off. The coolest thing for us is that Jesus paid our debt in full. There's no reoccurring payments that have to come up any longer. We no longer have to make reoccurring sacrifices time after time after time. There's no more, there's no more need to pay the debt. It's been paid for. It's been paid for. I've heard great stories of people saying, wow, I was, I was struggling with this or with that, and then this person came along and paid this huge sum of money, and they paid it. And I go, man, I want to meet these people uh, so that they could come along and pay it, right? You know, it's never happened to me, but it would be fantastic if it would. So if the Lord is laying it on your heart, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I, that, that is a pure joke. Hear me. There is no, no truth or, or any sense of or any of it. It's not real. I don't mean that. Uh, no other payment is needed. It is finished. It's finished. It's, it's cared for. It's done for. The third thing is this. His perfect obedience was finished. His perfect obedience was finished. By now, you probably know that I'm a big Charles Spurgeon fan, so if I quote Charles Spurgeon for the rest of my life, just know that, you know, I'm a huge fan. But he says this, it says, it was necessary in order that man might be saved that the law of God should be kept for no man can see God's face except he be perfect in righteousness. Jesus kept the commands of God. He kept the law to perfection so that one day he could then take on the imperfections of the world on the cross. He was born without sin in the first place, right? His virgin birth led him to being born without sin. But, but beyond that, he then carried out and lived without sin. He lived a pure, blameless life and, and, and walked in obedience to the Lord in all things. He, he walked without shame, without guilt. He walked without sin in his life, yes. But beyond that, he also carried out the fullness of obedience. 
I think the greatest example of, of his the obedience could be found in the garden. And he's crying and, and he's praying and, and, and he is in, in deep anxiety and anguish and he's, he's sweating blood in this moment and, and he's crying out to his father and he says, oh God, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Meaning, take this burden from me. If there is another way, if there's some other possibility that something else could be done. Because remember, we talked about his humanity last week. He's feeling the stress of all of this in that moment. And then he ends it with saying, not my will, Your will be done. Obedience even unto death on the cross. And there we find him hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished. I've carried out my full obedience to the Lord in this life. Obedience. Back in Matthew chapter five, he says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of, ke- of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a hard thing to try to swallow and be like, man, I can never obtain that level of righteousness. Even the Pharisees themselves couldn't obtain that level of righteousness. And yet Jesus did. And through Jesus, we can then take on his righteousness. It's only by the obedience of Christ that you and I could ever even receive the righteousness of Christ in the first place. It's only because he was righteous that you and I can then be called righteous in the eyes of the father. He says, my obedience is finished. I did what I had to do. I lived a life in perfect obedience to God so that on this cross, as I take on all the sin of the world, as I feel the weight of sinfulness for the first time in my life, as I feel the weight of everything that, that, that everybody feels and carries until the moment of, of, of repentance and, and turning over to Christ in that moment, he says, I feel all of that and I've carried that to this moment and in a moment of understanding that he has fully finished out his obedience, he says, it is finished. Because of my righteousness, they can now be considered righteous. It's one of the most beautiful things that we find in scripture that it's not just, it's not just this great moment of going, okay, good, we're in. It's not this like, all right, I got my golden ticket into heaven. No, this is a moment of saying all that you have done, all that you are, all the sin that you have carried, all of a sudden it is all washed clean. And in the eyes of the father, you are righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It was through his obedience that made a way for us to be called righteous. It is finished. It is finished. Jesus showed us that it's more than just offering our souls and strength while we live, but being willing to lay down our life for God's glory if the moment calls for it. I think sometimes that's one of the harder things to, to swallow in, in, in our culture and in our American world where we have freedom of religion and freedom of thought and that we can state that we're Christians and walk and, and, and maybe endure just the slightest amount of persecution of somebody possibly going, oh, how dare you be a Christian or don't push your values or your morals on me, right? In the reality of the world, that is the most minor amount of, of persecution that you could ever possibly endure when there are those in other countries around the world who say, I am willing to lay down my life for my faith and we don't even face such a thing here in this country. And Jesus said, 
I'm willing to be obedient even under the cross so that all people can have this righteousness. It's a deeply profound thought when you think, am I willing to be that obedient? Would I be willing to be that obedient even to the moment where somebody says, either you serve Christ and die or you deny Christ and live? And trying to go, am I there? Am I in that place? Am I in, is my faith there? And I think we all want to stand here and say, yes, I am. That is me. That is me. But until we're, we're pressed to that moment, do we fully know our level of obedience to the Father? And, and Jesus shows it in this moment that there's more glory in obedience than disobedience. And he said, I'm willing so that the glory of God may go forward to lay down my life. And at that moment, he's, he's realizing and understanding that his perfect obedience was finished. He had reached all the way to the final moment of his life. and said, it is finished. God can ask no more. The law has received all it claims. The largest extent of justice cannot demand another hour's obedience. It is done. It is complete. Let us rejoice then in this, that the master meant by his dying cry that his perfect righteousness, which covers us, was finished. That's an incredible thought. Through his righteousness, we are made righteous. His obedience made a way for us to walk in obedience. When you, when you encounter the grace of Jesus, you are filled with a desire to walk in obedience to Jesus. It's significant. The fourth thing is this. The power of Satan, sin, and death were finished. The very thing that caused our separation from the beginning in the garden. The very thing that caused us to be removed from God and be outside of, quote unquote, good graces with the Father, right? The very thing that caused this chasm and this pull apart, sin. The very thing that Jesus lived without for a moment looks as if it had won. For a moment looks as if it had the victory over Jesus. It was sin, our sin that nailed him to the cross. It was our sin that carries him there. It's our sin that, that hold him on the cross. And, and we look at it from that perspective and we go, oh man, sin has the victory. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm the altar on which your sins are being laid on. He says, I have victory over that. He says, I'm willingly giving my life in this moment. I am taking on the sin. I am taking on the, the, the hurts and the pains and all that, that this world is. I'm taking on the whole curse of sin in this moment and I'm carrying it with me to the cross because I will defeat it now in this moment. And his cry is, it is finished. It is finished. I almost wonder if there was a moment where Satan was thinking, we've got them. Oh, we've got them. They tried. He thought he would have victory, but I win. How awful of a feeling to realize, oh, I'm an idiot, right? And, and Satan's like, 
Wait, what is he doing? What's going on? He's not, he's not dead? How did we miss that one? Right? You know, that's just like a, I feel like he's just talking to all of those other people like, hey, 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 whose fault was that? Who was responsible? I don't know why the devil talks like that, but, uh, and I don't know what this move is either. I don't know, but I just feel like it was appropriate in the moment. I don't know. Just the anointing. You just roll with it, right? I uh, but it's just that moment of, of Jesus defeating sin, death, defeating Satan and saying, no, you have no place here. You have no authority. I rule over you. I conquer you. I win. It is finished. You have no say. No longer can you control or torment lives, but I have made a way for them to find freedom. I have made a way for salvation. It is finished. That's the greatest thing that we could ever possibly celebrate or talk about at any moment, at any time, is the fact that that there is nothing else we can do. It is finished. I heard about this evangelist years and years and years ago that had a man run up to him, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And the evangelist almost turns and while still kind of walking away from him said, you're too late. He keeps walking, and the man in in desperation goes, what must I do to be saved? And he goes, I'm sorry, you're too late. And he's like, sir, I I need to know. I need salvation. What must I do to be saved? He said, I'm sorry, you're about 2,000 years too late. Jesus did it all for you already. And he goes, "What, what, what do you mean? He said, it's been paid for. Jesus died for you. All you do is repent and confess Christ, and it's done. And he was going, wait a minute, that's it? There's this moment of being taken back by, that's all there is to it. And he said, it's already been done for you. It is finished. Sin, death, the devil, they're defeated. They have no rule. They have no reign. It is finished. It is finished. No longer is there anything that that you have to toil over or worry about any longer for your salvation because it is done for you. It's a repentant heart. It's an obedient heart that turns to Christ and says, I will follow you. I surrender to you. And there's salvation in that moment. There's salvation in that place. It's the most beautiful thing that we could ever find in scripture. It's the grace of Jesus and the life that, that, that we can now receive, what we can now have by the grace of God from Jesus laying down his life. There is nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can add to it. It's paid in full. When we try to add to it, when we try to, to put our own, our own stipulations on what salvation is, what the requirements we try to add to, to what is needed for our salvation, it, all we're doing is attaching filthy rags to, to the righteousness of Christ. And he's saying, I don't, I don't want your filthy rags. I've paid this already. I, I've done this. It is finished it's finished. Step into it. Just receive it. Just receive it. Just receive it. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.